Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Monday by Sport Review. Today I'm doing a podcast entitled George Santos and the Transfer Self-Delusions of the Top Six. Now, George Santos is an inveterate liar who managed to become congressman for an area of Long Island and a little bit of Queens in New York in the last congressional election. Everything that he basically ran on in terms of his personal backstory was a complete lie. He, I mean, I, I could go on for, you know, the whole podcast, you know, going through every single bit of his lies and delusions. and But for me, the way how it's more interesting is that it's not so much the lying, because literally, you know, had he tried to, you know, become elected as a Republican for, you know, Long Island, his actual backstory was not going to get him anywhere. You know, he was, you know, accused of check fraud back in Brazil. You know, he'd been a drag queen. You know, very little success and was basically a low-level grifter. Clearly, that was never going to get him selected as a candidate. It wasn't going to get him elected in any way, shape or form. So he created this entire illusion. In other words, he knew effectively what would get him elected, what would get him selected and then what would get him elected. And I think how this pertains to the the top six is, is the sense that we believe the top six are good at transfers. You know, it's the it's an obvious answer. If you were to question, are they good at transfers? Well, you know, it's points on the board. It's trophies in the cabinet. You know, the only long-term marker in performance in football, you know, correlation between success, you know, is money. Transfer spend and wages. That is what gets you there. They are the big clubs, they have the big money, and that is why they are successful, because they have access to the best players. But is that necessarily so? Is there an element of the fact that they are too big to fail? I mean, you've had these, you know, the counterpoint would be you have these ownership groups. You know, you've had Roman, you've had Clear Lake at Chelsea, you've had Abu Dhabi at Man City, that have thrown billions at these clubs without really a pervading interest, particularly in the bottom line. There isn't a sense that they are running this as a tight ship. It is, you know, you you don't need to lose that much money, just, but, you know, really, your fact, your, their interest was in financial fair play. If that didn't exist, they would have probably doped those clubs even further. It's an element that, you know, you've got the situation where, you know, you have this gap that is now between not just the top six and the rest of the Premier League, but the rest of Europe, you know, the top five leagues. You know, it's almost becoming really, you know, a chasm because the Premier League has so much money floating around it, you know, and it is just generally sucking light away from the other leagues. They just cannot compete financially with, you know, the TV rights with the worldwide interest. And so this podcast is really going to be sort of a deep dive into the the, the, the club's individual transfer records and also, you know, whether there's elements of groupthink in it. In other words, you know, why aren't these clubs taking some of the risks that they have because they are in too big to fail? You've had the situation, like, you know, Romulo Lukaku is your perfect example. He's been signed twice by Chelsea for big money both occasions. You know, he was a record sort of signing in terms of you know, for a teenager. 
You know, that when you spend 15, 16, 17 million pounds on a teenager, that is big deal back in in that day. They they then re-signed him for you know, 90 million pounds from Inter Milan. You've had Man United have spent um, you know, 60, 70 million pounds on Lukaku. And in all three occasions, it's not quite worked. You know, you've had Naby Keita, you know, at Liverpool they spent 60, you know, 50, 60 million pounds on him. It's not worked. You've had, you know, Man City put in a huge amount of effort to get Grealish in the mid-80s, and that hasn't really worked. You know, you've even now reached a point where the, the, the teams are effectively using, like, Ajax, RB Leipzig, Dortmund as a finishing school. In other words, they're not buying these young, talented players. What they are doing is they are, you know, for, you know, at bottom end cost. They're not spending five to ten million pounds on young players and developing them. What they are doing is they are finding these players when they're, let's say, take um, Garvidal, who had a fantastic World Cup for Croatia. Many clubs, you know, real, you know, started tracking him when he was in Croatia. But and you could have bought him maybe then for ten, fifteen million pounds, and then developed him internally, or you can basically wait, wait till let's say RB Leipzig sign him. He then you know, has a couple of years in Germany, does really well, and you buy him then. Yes, the price has gone up from ten to fifteen million pounds to seventy to eighty, but in fact you've got far more of a. You know, I suppose the assumption is is that he's more ready. He is just plug and play. There's no development. He will just be out of the box. Fantastic. <laughs> but what you're now increasingly seeing is is that while the Premier League has this you know, unrivaled, untrammeled spending power, what it means is is that because the wages that you know most of the Premier League teams are offering is more. In other words, your mid lower mid table teams can basically outbid in terms of transfer fee, in terms of wages. Some of the teams that are finishing in the top four in Germany, you know, the top six in Spain, you know. So it is that decision: do you go to Crystal Palace for forty five grand a week and basically be thirteenth, you know, possibly top ten if you have a great season, or if it's a bit of a rubbish season, you're fifteen, sixteen, just above the relegation zone, or do you go and you know play for let's say Eintracht Frankfurt and get into the Champions League or win the Europa League? But what what this is doing now is is that whereby when there was when there was more parity between the leagues, if your player didn't succeed, let's say you bought someone from Spain and it hasn't worked out, you could sell him to an Italian club and generally speaking you might lose a bit of money, but generally speaking you'd be able to offload it to a similar club in a different league. But now those players, you've almost, especially, and this is far more of an issue for the top six, it has now created a white elephant, a class of white elephant player. You know, Undumbele at Spurs, Lukaku. And they are too toxic to keep, and they are too toxic to sell, and they are financially too big to get rid of. You cannot, no one is going to pay, you know, no one in Italy, no one in Germany, no one in Spain, really has the money to put down 20 or 30 million pounds into Tungi Undumbele and then take on his wages. Because he signed, you know, a five, six year deal when he joined Spurs at big money. So... And so suddenly you you basically every year you know you have these players who are talented but the the Italian clubs you know these clubs don't have the money to put in and so suddenly you have to loan them out year after year and the transfer back, and and you're hoping maybe they have a wonder season and then because I mean even if you sold them Dombele for twenty million pounds that's still the best part of thirty million pound loss you know and you're having to subsidise wages and what you're now getting it is really 
middle-class teams in Europe, you know, Spain and Portugal, and to lesser, ex- you know, lesser extent Portugal, maybe, you know, some German clubs, some Italian clubs, is they're almost acting as scavengers. I mean, the classic deal is um, the Sevilla transfer between Spurs and them. So basically the deal was Sevilla got Eric Lamella, Spurs got Brian, Brian Hill. Now, Brian Hill was a young winger that they'd had on loan at um, Ibar, and he played a little bit for Sevilla, but he'd never really broken into the first team for any period of time. He was young, he was winger, he had a bit of pace, but he was quite slight, and they hadn't really found a position for him. Now, if, you, if that had been a straight-up transfer, you could sort of see it. But the fact is that Spurs then paid £20 million, which suddenly put a whole new emphasis. You know, they, they realised that they wanted to get rid of Lamella, but Lamella's wages and all the rest of it... But now what you've had is a situation where Brian Hill hasn't played much for Spurs, he's been loaned out, and now he's been, this after just about, just about sort of established himself on the fringe of the Spurs team, in January he gets loaned to Sevilla. So within that sort of 18-month period, Sevilla now have Brian Hill, they have Eric Lamella, and the £21 million from Spurs. I mean, and there's a possibility even that Spurs might be even be slightly subsidising, you know, some of Hill's wages. You know, at most, Sevilla have taken, have, have, you know, basically lowered the Spurs wage bill very small and paid a small loan fee. It, it, that is, you, you know, they have absolutely rinsed Spurs in that regards. You know, another example is, is what, it's because the Premier League has so much talent, they are loaning these players out. And you're creating almost like football factories. You have the City group, you have Chelsea, who are probably your best examples. Now, this Man City had Pedro Porro. And yeah, they sent him out on loan to Real Valladolid. They sent him out to Girona. They also sent him out, I believe, on loan to Portugal at one point. So, But he's never played for Man City, never you know, spent a season there. He was basically a little bit of a lottery ticket. So eventually they realised he wasn't going to make it into the first team. And so... You know, they've sold him off to you know, Sporting Lisbon for, I think, it was somewhere in the vicinity of four to five million pounds. He's then spent a couple of years at. To be fair, I might be wrong on that. He, they sold him to Valladolid and then he's joined Sporting Lisbon. It, it's really detailed. They basically, Man City sold him to an Iberian club for about four to five million pounds. At some point, Sporting Lisbon had his registration. He spent a couple of years there, done quite well, and now they've sold him back for. £40 million pounds plus two Spurs. So suddenly you've taken your £5 million pound player who's basically been developed by Man City, you've then turned him into £40 million. You know, that is a huge amount of money that you've earned, really, for a guy that's played for a couple of years for you, made a few assists, but he was not completely dependent. They can then just basically use that money to boost their, you know, their revenue, and then they can just basically buy the next talented right back from somewhere else for again four to five million pounds. And then if that works, you can develop the player and then sell him back on to you know if he then kicks on. And so that's what they're doing. There's a sense that the European clubs are quickly adjusted. Now you can then you know your argument is is that they didn't really have a choice, and this is something that's happened relatively quickly. But you can say that some clubs. You know, the smarter clubs on the continent are using the English Premier League as a cash point. They can basically develop these players, sell them onto the Premier League for huge amounts of money, and they can then get the youth team players, they can get the players that have failed on loans relatively cheaply, because the Premier League, you, you either set, if you want to make money, you sell within the Premier League, which can be difficult because you're possibly selling to a rival. 
If you're not, you're having to loan players out and hope they can re-establish some value, but you're eating that loss. But you can do because you're getting so much money in. Which I think then kind of leaves you to the point of the, the sort of... The, the one thing that we're really missing out in all of this discussion about, you know, sort of teams, is this really the, the question of the agency of the players. So you, you've had the situation where... I think this was definitely more pronounced at Chelsea, where you had the whole selection of talented players who ended up just permanently being on loan. You know, um, Izzy Brown, I think it was, spent a, was a relatively good attacking midfield player. He ended up spending a lot of time on loan in the Championship. And some of these players were Marco Marin, and they were really just spending years at Chelsea, never playing for the first team, never looking likely that they were ever going to get into the first team. They were into their mid-twenties having basically been on loan for five or six years all around the world, you know, championship, foreign, you know, going into Europe, some went to America. But their careers were almost ruined in a way because they were just, you know, they were, they were on good money at Chelsea, but there was no, you know, they just got sort of stuck, almost sort of, you know, lost behind the back of the couch. You know, some were happy to say. And a lot of it was money-making. So in other words, Chelsea would have sort of 40, 50, 60, 70 players in this wider squad. And really, all they were doing was picking up these players quite young, sticking the Chelsea sticker on them. Oh, that player played at Cobham and Chelsea. And then selling them on. And basically, that was you know, really subsidising some of their, you know, their youth structure and some of the sort of money that they were spending on the first team. And it was cynical. And it was an element of talent hoarding. You know, it's, it always reminds me of um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it's, you know, they we have to find these boys. Hell's bells, Mr. Lund. We can't have the competition happen. And it is, there's an element of dehumanising in it. And in some ways, you know, with Roman and, the, you know, Chelsea and the Youth Cup, it was almost, are you just having a successful youth team just for the sake of it? Is it really just a ball ball rather than an actual thing that you're using to improve your first team? You know, you have the lament of the, you know, permanent loanee. You know, Pedro Porro, one of his interviews, said, I'd never spoke to Pep. I didn't even know if Pep knew who I was or knew I was actually in the you know, Man City team. Or really what effectively he was, he was a member of the City group more than he ever was, you know, Man City. You have these creation of feeder clubs, networks. You know, it's a bit like one of the questions I would have to ask, a wider question is, is that... Chelsea spent in the early sort of 2010 spent a, sent a load of their youth team players to Vitesse Arnhem. It became a bit of a running joke. Is that you know you, going to Vitesse Arnhem was part of the Chelsea experience? And I suppose the question is: is that did it benefit Chelsea particularly much? Did you know some of those players that spent time on loan at Vitesse ever actually make much of an impact at, at Chelsea? I think Mason Mount did okay when he was at Vitesse Arnhem, but I don't. I don't particularly recall many of those players who played at Vitesse ever really having much of an impact. And really, with Vitesse, did that benefit them? Did having all those players, did that knock them up the Dutch league? I don't think it did. Which is then... So rather than the lament of the permanent lonely, you then had the, the sort of flip side of the coin, is you had a new generation of players who were much less trusting. You know, there were people like, you know, Jadon Sancho is probably the poster boy, the first person. You know, he was very highly rated at City, and he wasn't sure that he was ever going to get first-team football. He let his contract run down, 
and he could have gone anywhere. You know, United were interested, Spurs were interested, but he makes this kind of, at the time, a left-field decision to go to Borussia Dortmund. And that was the making of him. Suddenly he was 18-19 playing week-in, week-out football in front of 70,000 people at the Westfalen Stadion, and suddenly he's at the top end of, you know, German football. He's coming up against Bayern Munich. He's coming against RB Leipzig, Eintracht Frankfurt, you know, the Schalke, the big teams playing in big stadiums, playing in the Champions League. And that, you know, sent his development skyrocketing, whereby had he stayed at Man City and had a, you know, an appearance in the, in, the, in the League Cup occasionally, the FA Cup, a sub-appearance here and there, would never have had that level of development. You know, with the top six, you have so much money and all of the infrastructure is there. All of them have you know, upgraded their training facilities. They all have world-class training facilities. They have world-class youth team coaches. And so I suppose the question is, is why pay these inflated fees? Why not trust the expensively put-together academy-based bred players? You know, we always talk about you know, how important tactics are. Tactics have now become... You know, an obsessive thing for a certain you know, percentage of football fans. It is the numbers. It, the expected goals is the be-all and end-all. And that your team has to have a philosophy, a style of pressing, a style of tactics. And it always confuses me then, if you're teaching all of these players that and they're steeped in it from the ages of 6, 7 and 8 onwards, well, why aren't those people there? Shouldn't they be the perfect people? Why are you, you know, spending all of this money getting all of these players from who often don't work? who often, you know, become expensive white elephant players. If, you know, and who don't fit into the, you know, the tactical constraints that you, that the clubs have. I mean, I suppose that the... One of the examples was when Jadon Sancho eventually left Dortmund. He goes to United for big money. You know, 17, I think it was you know, late, high 70s, early 80s in terms of transfer fee. And he was misused. And, you know, you've spent all this money, you, you... My logic would be, if you're going to sign Jadon Sancho for £18 million, you therefore have to get Jadon Sancho into the best position that he can be in for him to be successful. That seems to be the most obvious way of going about it. And yet suddenly, Man United then, you know, at the back end of the transfer window, panic, and then sign Ronaldo. You know, it, you know in some ways, they, you know, there's always going to be that question mark of... Yes, there was the element of the PR bit. I think it was also the PR side of it. They didn't want to see him at Manchester City. I think that would have been a killer. But suddenly you then have this moment where it then overshadows Sancho. Sancho, I think, was affected by it. He was rarely played in the right position. And then you know, all the attention and all of the, you know, goes on to Ronaldo. And that had a, yeah, it did have an impact on Bruno Fernandes' form. And suddenly for all of that PR-dominated signing, it's actually, you've ended up... You know, it's only now, you know, sort of after a couple of years with a change of manager, have you finally seen glimpses of the Jaden Sancho that they actually paid the £80 million for? I mean, you're getting to the stage where these youth systems, you know, British, English players, British players who are coming through the academy systems are good. You know, you look into the success of England at youth level in the past, sort of, you know, three or four tournaments, you know, you've had... And the success of you know, Steve Cooper, who was one, who was a manager of the England team that won. At, you know, he's had success at Swansea. He's had success at Forest. And I think it's interesting. I think it's multifaceted. You know, you have the element of an inflation of fan expectations, 
And I'll, I'll go into a bit more detail about this later in the podcast, but this, the concept of winning the transfer window. You now have a situation where you have a 24-7 news cycle. So whereby, you know, players, you know, when, you know, in the, in the late 90s, the early 2000s, you would often give that player a few months, a year. It was really, you know, years two, three, and four of the contract was where you saw the benefit. You know, sometimes, you, whereby now... It used to be like, you know, you don't really, you know, the rule used to be sort of six games. You know, you give the player six games to sort of see where they are at and whether they need more development. Now, I, I don't think you, I think you last about six minutes. You know, if you are not instantaneously successful, you can be rendered a bust very quickly. There is no sense of development. And I think that's partly because the managers don't have that time. But the fans, I think, have that impact. And I think the media, to a lesser extent, have that impact. So what you're getting now is is that, you know, I think if we're going to discuss the transfers of the top six, I think you have to go burrow a little bit deeper and go into, you know, well, why aren't they using their young players? So, you know, City have all of these talented players, and yet... You know, uh, we were told that Cole Palmer, Liam Delap were, were the future. And they haven't really made much of an impact. I mean, Foden is the outlier, but that is more to do with the fact that he's just a very gifted football player. You know, Eric Garcia kind of made a few appearances, ran down his contract and went to Barcelona. You know, Angelino made a few appearances and looked like Pep didn't really want to develop him. As I've mentioned, Sancho, you've had Ian Nacho that didn't particularly, made a handful of appearances and went to Leicester. You know, historically, you had Daniel Sturridge, you know, Brahim Diaz, who scored for AC Milan against Spurs a couple of weeks ago, you know, who went to Real Madrid. You know, you Trippier, you know, went through the youth system at Man City, never got anywhere close to, you know, making an appearance. And... You're, you're sitting there, that's an awful lot of talent that really at no point has particularly benefited Man City. I mean, if you, I mean, one of probably the, you know, Rico Lewis, who's, you know, broken through at fullback this year. But I, I think the question I would say about Rico Lewis is was that a case that Rico Lewis had done really well, or was that a case that Pep and um, Yao Cancelo? had a massive falling out and literally, you know, he just picked the first, you know, right back, you know, the first fullback that he could find that could just fit in. And, but it shows you though that the kid, limited amount of experience, immediately excelled. You've had the same thing at Liverpool with the rise in midfield of um, Stefan Bajcetic. I probably butchered the pronunciation, I do apologise. But what you have then is, is that, was that, again, a sign that, you know, they rated him. I mean, they bought him from, you know, Celta Vigo in 2020. So he has sort of gone through their youth system, but sort of not, if you get my drift. But again, is that because you rated him and you really thought that you were going to push him up into the first team? Or was it because you've had a bit of an injury crisis and your midfield has completely collapsed there? You know, a lot of them seem to be, you know, running on empty. And that, again, he was the... First, you know, midfielder that you could find that actually had, you know, was had legs and that could, you know, cover, you know, ground and, you know, just basically do a job. I think your classic example is you look at Chelsea and the transfer ban. So a couple of years ago, they had a transfer ban put in by UEFA and they brought in Frank Lampard. And I, at the time, I think it was a very canny political move. 
they've got this transfer ban possibly for two years, possibly 18 months. There was a possibility that it was going to be, you know, maybe cut a little bit on appeal, but there was going to be a transfer ban for at least a season, come what may. And, you know, you'd have the sorry regime, the administration that hadn't worked. It had wound up the Chelsea fans. And so suddenly bringing a Chelsea legend, in that he was young, he was fresh, he'd had a little bit of success at Derby, that generally would created some form of goodwill, knowing that basically you were putting him into a difficult position where he had a talented squad, but there were some holes, and that there was a possibility it was going to be basically a bit of a bridge year. You were going to have to basically, you may not qualify for the Champions League. It may be a rough one. And you just basically suck it up. And if, you know, Frank doesn't do a great job, you throw your hands up, say it's unfortunate you sack him. The transfer ban then elapses. And then you can pour in some money and get a new, you know, high-end coach to then take Chelsea into the next stage. But actually it works. You know, that transfer ban accelerated the development of Mason Mount. Bikaro Tamori, you know, Tarek Lamptey, Reese James, you had an unexpected top four finish. And you're like, okay, but for that transfer ban, would you have maybe possibly hired Frank Lampard? Maybe not. Maybe you'd have gone for a high-end coach, given the high-end coach a big budget. And then actually those players may not have had the minutes that they would have had. And he didn't seem to, you know, Chelsea and Roman Abramovich didn't seem to learn the lesson because they then immediately at the end of the season, you know, the transfer ban had elapsed. They then throw a huge amount of money at four or five players and the, you know, it completely undermined the common pipeline. It basically, you know, Tariq Lamptey then goes off to um, Brighton for not a huge amount of money. You know, Fikara Tomori ends up going on loan to AC Milan, doing quite well there, and joins AC Milan. And you're really sort of back to square one. Frank Lampard do- doesn't really handle having all of these new players be you know, basically thrust upon him. And then the expectation level isn't just, you know, happy to be in the top four. It's win or die. And then he gets sacked, you know, pretty quickly in the January. And then Chelsea go on and you know, win the Champions League with two shell. It's that kind of, you know, you've had the situation where... You know, a few years ago, there was you know a, there was a, a classic cup game. It was I think it was the third round. It was Liverpool versus Everton. Liverpool were at home at Anfield. It was on Sunday early evening televised game on BBC One, and Liverpool basically put out something close to not. It wasn't a reserve team. There was lots of youth in it. Everton put out their first team, and shock up, you know, Liverpool massively outplayed Everton and quite easily won the game. And it was a huge amount of hype that you know that Liverpool had this next generation of great players. You know, you had Harry Wilson, Nico Williams, or Nico Williams even, Ben Woodburn, Rian Brewster. And now that you look at it a few years you know, past, none of those players have made much of an impact for Liverpool. They've all you know moved on. And really, you know, outside of again, what you seem to have with this is that there's talent. Because, you know, Williams and Wilson have played at a high level for Wales in international tournaments. You know, Rianne Brewster has been signed for a large amount of money. Is that there is talent there. You know, when they had, you know, Liverpool had their centre-back crisis, they discovered, you know, Curtis Jones. I know he's a centre midfielder, but as part of that, because they had to drop Jordan Henderson at the back and Fabinho at the back, they discovered that Curtis Jones was quite good. 
and Nat Phillips came out of the youth and he turned out to be quite solid. I mean, they both effectively become sort of backups and have been buried in the depth chart, but the thing is, is that there is talent there. You know, you have Keller, the backup goalkeeper, and, you know, this season you've had Carvalho and Harvey Elliott that have played quite big minutes, but they were both brought. They were high-end talents that Liverpool were able to, you know, basically... Entice. In other words, neither of them wanted to stay you know, at their existing clubs. I believe it was Fulham, moved to the bright lights of Anfield. So, but it's not the same as having a pipe development pipeline. You know, signing you know young pl- promising players. They're lottery tickets. You know, you're not. You know, how much money did Liverpool put in to Elliot? You're talking a few million. You know, same thing with Carvalho. Yes, there is. You know. Elements where if they really succeed, you have to pay a bit more money. And there's, you know, you, if you sell them on, you might have to give some of the money back to Fulham. But reality is, is that if those players never played a minute for Liverpool, that's a few million that's gone. But it's worth the risk if they turn out to be world class. And so you think about it, you look at the amount of political capital that Klopp and Pep have had and the years they've been there. And yet, you know, if you compare it to, let's say, the average Chelsea manager under Roman. And yet, none of them have really developed a huge amount of young players. You know, you have Trent and Foden, but those were so talented, you, they were can't-miss prospects. You know, I think it comes down to the sort of question, and this is going to be relatively unscientific. I'm not going to go through every single playing log to work out who's, you know, whose youth team players have had the most minutes. But I guess, you know, back of the, you know, back of the cigarette packet, you know, thing, which out of the top four has been best recently for youth development? Uh, you say with Spurs, you've had pretty much Oliver Skip. I mean, historically, you can talk about Harry Kane, but that was years and years and years and years ago. You know, with Chelsea, you've had Mount, James, and to an extent, Trevor Chalabar. But if you look at Trevor Chalabar, well, he's played quite well, but they keep buying centre-halves for idiot amounts of money. You know, they've spent money on about a shillade, who they've just, you know, who was, you know, similar age, similar sort of profile to Chalibur. They've spent a load of money on, you know, they spent a load of money on another young centre-half, Wesley Fafana from Leicester, and they've then gone and spent even more money, you know, more money on Koulibaly. So pretty much you can, you know, the writing is on the wall for Chalibar is, is that I don't see him ever really making it as a front-level player at, you know, Chelsea. They're, they're just, they've, there's too many, you know, fancier players that they are going to bring in. You know, with Man City, you've had Foden and Lewis. Man United, Rashford, but even that is, you know, you're talking the, you know, he made his debut under Louis Van Gaal. So that's a while ago. You know, you've had Alanga that's played a little bit and Garnacho, but then again, Garnacho was a player that they bought. You know, Brandon Williams a few years ago made a few appearances, but he's very strictly a backup. McTominay, Really, I, I think you're looking at. To, to me, I think Arsenal's probably that the club that has in of the recent you know years has been able to best you know bring in players. You've had Anketia, generally was a bit of a backup, but now you know Jesus has got injured. He's starting regularly. You've had Saka, who's then gone to the next level. You know, Reese Nelson. You've had Smith Rowe. I mean, with Smith, with but that's. I suppose to a certain extent what you're saying is, is, what you can say, is that that was poor league finishes. Really opened the door for Arsenal to basically look into their youth system and, you know, 
as luck has had it, you know, they had quite a few good young players, all of the same age, come up at the same time. I mean, it'd be, it's interesting to note that someone like Ainsley Maitland-Niles didn't quite make the, the jump, and that Smith Rome would look really promising, but I think whether he makes it is, is an open-ended thing. With Reese Nelson, I think a similar situation, but you know, Saka is the main one. But again, you, you I think there is more talent in the top six than in their youth systems than the clubs are willing to admit. But I think that is a, a factor of many different sort of factors. But I think one of the most is is that they're not really willing to take the risk. I think they're much happier just by throwing money at the next talented player off the line from France or from Germany rather than actually sit there and invest time and energy into a pipeline. The point is is that if Klopp isn't going to do it and if Guardiola isn't going to do it, then nobody else has had that level of political capital within it. You know, it's going to be much harder for Arteta going forward now to put in youth team players. But I think it's a lack of will on some levels. Which I think then neatly kind of leads on to the, a key question about this is, and this is mainly for the top six more than the rest of the Premier League, is the academy, what is it for? Is it a ball ball? Is it a money-making gambit? Is it a lottery ticket factory? You know, in effect, are you, by when I say a lottery ticket factory, is it desperately seeking Russia? Is the entire point of your youth system on the off chance that you will have a local boy, a Harry Kane, or a Marcus Rashford that comes up and becomes world-class, and actually all the rest of the players, it's just detail. They're just making up the numbers, and if a couple more of those players turn out to be semi-decent, then fair enough, or they can fill in when there's an injury crisis. But really, what you're doing is, is you're just there to get that lottery ticket of that world-class player coming out of nowhere. Or are you basically using it as a way to subsidise your training facilities, you know, as a way of basically making some money and underpinning some of it? So in other words, you have, you know, are you creating youth team players to go out to your sister clubs on the off chance to, that the sister club does well so that they accidentally find a local Marcus Rashford? You can then buy that player pretty quickly. Is that kind of cynicism. And I think it comes down to a point that there does seem to be within the modern game. We are so used to, and this comes back to really the sort of George Santos element, the self-delusion element. You know, that local Republican Party just believed what he said because they wanted to believe it. Now, are we as fans and the media, are they sitting there just believing that these people are experts because they're in big offices? Because there does seem to, and that the idea is that it's the Football operations of, of a football club, a major top six, is so complex that you need you know, a director of football. You need a football operations staff. Because to me, it appears more and more that there is really a disjunction between direct, you know, the, the old school, what we would call a director of football, and managers. There doesn't seem to be a huge amount of organisation. It seems to be a lot closer to, it seems to me not particularly well run. I think a, a good question would be, is there a possibility of another class of 92 even being possible? So the Man United youth system class of 92, create a whole brand of, you know, a whole 
coterie of great players that really underpinned their success in the mid to late 90s. In other words, you had a great team that kind of ran its course up until, let's say, the 95 Cup Final, and then start of the 95-6 season, you suddenly had a whole, you know, the Neville brothers, you had Skulls, you know, Giggs had you know, graduated a few years previously, and then, you know, Nicky Butt, and that kind of then led to the next period, which culminates in, you know, the 99 treble team. Is that even possible now? You know, would the new ownership groups that are popping up in the Premier League be patient enough to do so? You know, what you're getting is is that you know with you know the disjunction. I think that where it's most noticeable is between you know sort of Conte and Spurs, or I'll go into detail a bit later, and Potter as well. I'm not quite sure that Graham Potter wanted to spend five hundred million pounds on at the you know. All of that money in January. I don't think that would have been his plan. But you know, that is what has been now you know, foisted on him. Which I think... Which then goes on to, so, you know, to talk about the youth system in general. You know, are you get, you know, is there a team in the Premier League that is going to primarily rely on, on their academy? And, you know, you may have said, you know, West Ham, they always had a traditional one. But now that they're moving towards the Europa League and being in the Europa Conference on a regular basis, I don't think there is that desire to do so. You had Southampton. They had their great youth system in it, you know, that generated some, you know, you had Walcott, you had Bell, you had Oxalade Chamberlain. But I think it's noticeable that and your West Ham had their great youth run in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s. You know, you had... Lampard, you had Cole, you had Carrick, you know, Jermaine Defoe, although they'd signed him from Charlton when he was about 16, you know, Glenn Johnson, you know, that's a huge, Rio Ferdinand a couple of years earlier, but that's a huge amount of talent to come out. But I think it's noticeable in both of those cases, they were relegated. In other words, you know, you know the Southampton player, yeah, they were probably too young to have kept Southampton in the Premier League, but they didn't help Southampton get out. They ended up going down to League One. There's financial problems. All of those players were sold off and never really made much of an impact for Southampton as actual players. You know, Bale had one season where they played him at wing back and they got through to the semi-finals of the playoffs. Didn't win. Didn't get promoted. You know, you could say Palace, but you know, the point is, is that in many ways, you know, Croydon in the wider area that in Surrey has created a huge amount of talent, but that has necessarily been strip mined. I mean, okay, they have improved their, you know, recently improved their youth facilities, and it's too early to success whether that keeps those, you know, players from going to Chelsea, from going to Arsenal, from going to Spurs, or going elsewhere in the country. But that element, the thing is, is that even if you look at the, the great players that Palace have come through, is that they don't actually the benefit financially. Let's say you look at Zaha when they sold him, they weren't doing particularly financially brilliantly and that helped underpin their finances. But he doesn't play in his first spell, Crystal Palace, doesn't play in the Premier League. He's already been signed by United. He gets them up into the Premier League. That's great, but never played Premier League football in his first spell. You look at John Bostock, great young player, played a few games for Palace, then got sold to Spurs for big money at that time for a 15, 16-year-old. Even Aaron Wan-Bissaka, played a few games for you know, Crystal Palace and was immediately then bought by Manchester United. You know, how many games did they actually play for them? What benefit did it have to the first team? And, and it's relatively limited. 
I mean, it's an interesting question of whether Premier League teams who are outside of the top six are going to, you know, effectively follow the Brentford B model. In other words, Brentford will be like, look, spending all this money on, on a youth system is a complete waste of time. Look, we'll just create a B team that will play friendlies and we will just pick up young, talented players who are, you know, floating around and effectively it's a lottery ticket 11. In other words, we're not going to spend huge amounts of money if we get these young, talented players, if a few of them end up working great, but other than that, you know, putting in all of this groundwork that is, you know, in some ways, inefficient. Now, obviously, that they're in the Premier League, they have to now create at least you know, some modicum of a youth development. But it's interesting that no one seems to have gone through with it or changed it. There seems to be a lot of copycatism. There's a lot of groupthink. I mean, one of the interesting ones where someone has actually, you know, I think, stepped out of the that group thing was probably Man City. Oh, sorry, was um, Southampton in the summer. Instead of spending a load of money on some, you know, experienced players to try and prop up the teams, what they did is they they bought three Man City youth team graduates, basically people who were never going to play anything like more than ten minutes for Pep in a you know early round you know League Cup game. So they signed the keeper, Gavin Bizzano, Romeo Levaya, and Samuel Edoisi. But they put in something like, I mean, I'm getting these are in euros. That's 14 million for Bizzuno, the goalkeeper. Um, Levaya, who I believe is a defensive centre mid, 12.3 million euros. And the winger, Edoisi, was 8 million euros. So that is, you know, basically, you know, 35 million euros. So that's, you know, that's round somewhere in the vicinity of 30 million pounds. And that's, that's bold. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily worked. I think you can make, you know, it's a bold gambit, but I think where your question mark is is the playing culture have been degraded. They, Southampton have been struggling for at least a, two, at least a couple of years. You know, there was a lack of experienced players. I think there was poor communications, really, between the football operations, the board and the manager. You know, they didn't really believe in Hassan Huttle. They got rid of him. They ended up with Nathan Jones, and that, that could be a whole podcast in itself, did, did, how much of a debacle that was. And that maybe, had the, the playing culture been a bit more stronger, that you know gambit could have worked. I mean, it may work next year in the championship. Those three players are probably going to stay at Southampton, and they, you know, with a year's worth of Premier League experience, they could end up you know, destroying the championship. That is a possibility if Southampton get you know, kind of relegated. And I guess all I would have to say is is that if you look at it, there's a huge amount of talent in youth systems and I don't think it is particularly effectively used by a lot of Premier League clubs and I th- especially at the top level, it top, in the top six. And I think that we are in some ways deluding ourselves into believing that because these people have fancy training grounds and fancy offices and fancy titles, that they are necessarily that brilliant. I mean, if you look at the instability at Liverpool, and I think a lot of that has been the ball by suggesting that they might sell or they were looking for investment, but you've had a situation where, you know, you've had a, a, an amount, some amount of turmoil, but whether, and it's an interesting question, is whether that turmoil led to some of the decisions they made in the summer, and we'll pro- I'll go into that in a little bit more detail, but, but I think it's interesting if you look at the two of the teams who have been more successful this season in, in the top six, you know, Arsenal and Manchester United, and it seems both of them had a, a sort of a lack of 
high-end football operations. And that's particularly Manchester United. And in some ways, has that actually helped rather than hindered Ten Hag? In other words, you basically had staff that were like, okay, yeah, they've made some changes. They tried to bring in sort of director of football. But that football operation was relatively new. And that was something that was, you know, that they were trying to sort of bring in when they put... Um, they put Ralph Rangnick, the idea was that he was going to be basically almost sort of like, he was going to, you know, remake the football operations side of it, but then he, he sort of almost by accident became the temporary manager and that kind of failed. And But, you know, they had changed, made some changes, but really what I would say is, is that they were working towards Ten Hag rather than dictating the political settlement, which is, uh, you get that a lot more at Chelsea and to a lesser extent at, you know, Spurs. You know, at Spurs, Levy tells you what you're doing and what you've had is a situation where Mourinho and Conte have constantly been, you know, bristling at that. You know, trying to change it, trying to, you know, fight these sort of political battles. You know, whereby Man United win a relatively weak position and actually they've therefore given a lot more power to Ten Hag. And I suppose my question would be is, is there a possibility that actually we're now going almost full circle whereby you've had for a lot of years you had the idea that the coach would basically do the you know would basically be on the training pitch and then you'd have the you know higher ups on sort of the the second floor of the training center who are the ones who make the decisions and buy the players and then you know the coaches basically just kind of are interchangeable but now with you know with arsenal with Edu and Arteta, and again, what you'd have to almost say is that Edu was working towards what Arteta wanted. There seemed to be a good relationship there, and that really it was a sort of similar, a complete rebuild over the ruins of the sort of the late Wenger decay. You, know, you had to root out Ozil or Aubameyang. You focused on youth, and a lot of that was because they didn't have a huge amount of money because the players weren't, you know, the ownership weren't putting in huge amounts of money. You know, you, you have the Willian error, which I think really sort of underlined to them that actually they had to just go full, I don't know, it's pretty much almost a full rebuild. You know, they went versatile, they went younger, they brought from different places, you know, they brought Marti Martinelli from Brazil, they focused on France, they brought a couple of young players, you know, most notably Ramsdale and White, you know, you, the idea that you loan Odegaard and then you bought him on once he'd made that performance. You know, with Jesus and Zinchenko, yes, there was the point is that you had the experience of being successful at City and maybe what they may become retrospectively now they're doing well and might win the league is the last piece in the puzzle. But even then, yes, you can focus on the winning mentality, but both of those players have their best years in front of them and there's room to improve. You know, with Ten Hag, you know, compare him to, let's say, Solskjaer, is that I don't know whether Ole Gunnar Solskjaer ever had the power to sit there and say, OK, we're going to get most of our players, you know, from the Eredivisie um, in Holland. So, you know, Malassia, Martinez, Anthony, I mean, even Vigorst is someone you know, who is Dutch. Yes, I mean, he spent most of his you know, sort of formative career in Germany, and it was via you know, Burnley and then Besiktas, but you know, he's still Dutch-trained. That's how I would put it. I suppose what, what it then I suppose leads to, in some respects, is a, a point is, well, 
if the Premier League is so rich and it's so enticing, well, are teams just going to buy the best young players? And if you note, I think the, the key is here is, is that if you note the distinct drop in the Premier League buying from the Football League, you know, there's no more trickle, there's much less trickle down element to this. In other words, you know, ten a half, and I suppose this is a element of why I'm saying that sometimes these managers and these front office staff, you know, they may sound very bright and your assumption is, is that they must be really good, but it's noticeable that he really only, almost felt more confident buying from the Eredivisie, where he knows the players, where he has an understanding of the mentality and how they've been trained. He didn't have the confidence to sit there and go through with the championship. You know, the element, you know, even with, you know, Arteta, where things have been going very well, is that he obviously knew Jesus and Tijinchenko. He'd been the assistant manager at Man City. You know, the sense is that with Adu, that, you know, he may have plucked Martinelli out and that's a fantastic you know, lottery ticket, but the point is, is that he'd been working in Brazil and he would have had a better knowledge of which lottery ticket. In other words, plenty of teams have bought young players from Latin America and very often it fails for a whole range of different reasons. You know, the, the actual step up from you know, Brazilian football to European football and specifically English football is a huge jump and uh, really I don't think a front office that was primarily English would be able to you know, pick out a, a Martinelli. Or if they did, it would be far more luck than it would be. Whereby with Adu, I think there's a sense of you know, that local knowledge really having a, a major benefit. And the point is now you get into the, where, a stage where the Premier League seems more confident in... more confident in scouting Le Championnat in France then they do the championship which i think is is interesting and i suppose what it le what you can then say is well the point is is then has this strength in the championship and i guess if you look at you know Watford being able to keep Ismail Assar which wouldn't have happened a few years ago if you had a player that ended up you know leading the Senegal team that didn't have Mane into you know the latter stages of a world cup and had scored goals in the Premier League, the idea that he would then be still with Watford for a whole season in the Championship would have been ridiculous. A player with that talent, you know, with that Premier League experience, wouldn't have kept. And if you look at it, you can say that, you know, in recent years you've had Burnley massively performing. The point is, when I'm talking about Burnley under Dyche, I'm not saying keeping them in the Premier League for a few years. Many managers can, are capable. I mean, he took them into Europe. He took them into sort of, you know, the top seven, top eight. You know, you've had Sheffield United have that great season. You know, Fulham to an extent. I mean, I would say with Fulham, it's, it's almost like they're a fourth or fifth time lucky, really. That they've learned from all of the times when they got it completely and utterly wrong. I mean, I suppose you could say, you know, Leeds and Villa. But I think that the caveat with that one is they were much bigger, more well-funded. And there was, there was a lot more happening whereby I don't think people were expecting Burnley to ever finish in the top 10 with Sean Dyche's manager. I don't think anyone expected Sheffield United to do as well as they did in that first season. And yeah, with Brentford and Brighton, it's, you know, they've done really well. I mean, the point is, is that with Brentford, your thing is, is that when are they going to start losing players? In other words, you know, Raya is going to be your first sort of test case because you're not going to get idiot money for him. He only has one year left on his contract. And so the point is, is that the, this team is really good that they currently have, but they might start losing players now. 
and it's how you rebuild that second great team. So you've got a great team now. How you know what happens when some of those players start to age? And you have that with Brighton. They did quite well when they first came into the Premier League, and that team got older. And some of the signings they had made, yeah, you know, they signed the Iranian wing, and that hadn't really quite worked. They signed another couple of players that you know they were using the foreign market, and that can be very tricky. And it's, you know, the question is with them is, is panning for gold sustainable? They've had, you know, Basuma has worked out and the guy that they replaced him with, you know, Moises Casado has done really well, but then he might not be staying. So, you know, it's, I suppose the question with both Brighton and Brentford is, is that do their infrastructures and their methodologies have the potential to stick? Are they going to keep doing this? And what happens is if they solidify themselves in sort of the upper echelons of the Premier League, will their, you know, can their scouting style, you know, take them into Europe, you know, Europe Conference, Europa League, and can they maintain doing it? Which I think brings us on to an interesting theory. Is there a balance of payment crisis in European football due to the, you know, English Premier League's hegemony? And I would say that what you had is a situation where England and the Premier League were importers. They just sucked in as many players as possible for, and didn't really, you know, very few English players particularly went abroad. And, you know, you, you, you sold players you know, back to Europe, but it wasn't, it was far more players were going, were being signed than were being sold back to Europe. And I think what you'd say is if there was some kind of crisis, I think you'd have noticed it by now. You know, the point is, is that really, you know, there's no, you know, leagues that are in overt crisis. You know, these clubs have managed to change quite quickly. In other words, they are now using, the, you know, as I said earlier, the, the idea of the Premier League as a cash point, as a way that they can basically get players on the cheap, you know, on loan deals where there's no obligation to buy you know, where the, the wages are subsidised, and so there's very little risk on their side of it. And basically, you can develop these players and sell them on. The point is, is that outside of Juventus and Barcelona, there's really a lack of obvious crises. And those crises are, I think, very particular to um, themselves. They are self-inflicted blows. And that the Premier League is not overtly dominant in Europe. You know, it may do in the next couple of years, but at the moment, that's not necessarily the case. And it is not, you know, English teams are not as dominant as they were in the 70s and 80s with the European Cup, where you had Villa, Nottingham Forest a couple of times, you had Liverpool, you know, you had Spurs winning the, you know, UEFA Cup. And it's not as comparison to how dominant the Liga was in the 2010s or Serie A in the 90s to a lesser extent. The point is, is that England is now exporting players. You know, you've got you know, someone like Adamola Lookman is doing brilliantly well for Atalanta. And it appears that he's actually better suited to be playing in, in Central Europe than he ever has done in the Premier League when he's been at several different clubs. You know, I think the classic case is really the case study I would use is Ajax buying Bergwijn from Spurs and Haller from West Ham. You know, Timo being bought back by RB Leipzig. So in other words, you know, there are clubs, you know, spending good, you know, decent amount of money to get Premier League players, you know, back in. So in other words, you know, Bergwijn, you know, I think with Bergwijn there's always a sense of what if with him. But the fact is, is that it does show that there is some element of 
you know, power within, you know, the Eredivisie. The fact that they spent nearly, you know, best part of 20 million to get him back. Now, the point is, I think that is a rarity, and I think that's due to Ajax's, you know, recent successes in Europe. And the fact that they're trying to change their model a little bit from instead of, you know, the situation where, you know, Ericsson, uh, Toby Adeviraud, Jan Vertonghen, you know, they all went to Spurs. You know, the, the team that got to the semi-final, Ziyech went, you know, they're, they're trying to rebuild. And the fact that they, you know, signed Halaf, they hadn't quite worked out. But the point is, is that Spurs lost money on Bergvine and West Ham lost quite a bit of money on, you know, Haller. And it's noticeable then that, you know, from the success he had at Ajax, he then was immediately, you know, palmed off to, you know, Dortmund for a big profit. So within that context there, it's not completely one-sided. I don't think there is a crisis, but I think that the, the there is a certain amount of flexibility in, with football clubs that they've been able to refashion, you know, to the fact that the English have all of this money. Whether that changes, whether there are more obvious issues, it's still a little bit up in the air, but I wouldn't say that there's a balance of crisis in terms of payments. I get the feeling that the Premier League is spending loads of money, the rest of the leagues have cut back on their spending and are getting lots of money from the Premier League. In other words, the Premier League money isn't trickling down to the Championship, but it is certainly trickling down to Portugal, Spain, Germany. I think that's, you know, and definitely France. And while I touched on this a little bit earlier about, you know, the, the, the impact that fans and media have, I do think that the snap judgment on players promotes groupthink. And I think it bleeds into manager's shelf life and short-term thinking, which is antithetical to using youth players. And I think one of the interesting elements that I don't think has been really touched on enough in, you know, when people talk about, you know, modern technology or social media, is I think to the extent that, with football Twitter, are fans more aware of how they perceive by rival fan bases? Whereby, I suppose when I was growing up as a kid, is that really how your team were perceived by, was really how your mates did. So if, if you know, so if Craig was the Chelsea fan, if let's say, you know, uh, Martin was, was the Liverpool fan, their opinion of what they thought of Spurs was about as good as it got. You didn't really know how the rest of all Liverpool fans felt about things. You all it would be very obvious points. It's like Liverpool and Everton have a rivalry. Tottenham and Arsenal don't like each other. Arsenal fans don't like Spurs. Spurs fans don't like Arsenal. But I think now what you have is there's there's a far greater sense of perceptions, and I think people are very touchy on it. The idea of maintaining face. You know, I think that one of the best examples I have is the Flynn Downs signing. So basically, Flynn Downs grew up as a West Ham fan, was a talented young midfielder, did quite well at Swansea, and West Ham decided to buy him. Now, usually, I think a few years ago, that would have been heralded as a, as a classic West Ham signing. You're bringing him home, boy's got a lot of potential, he's a good footballer, you know, potentially could end up being a replacement for Declan Rice, West Ham through and through. Young player, big ceiling, you haven't spent a huge amount of money. And yet, the fan base sort of criticised them. I think the point was is that now West Ham fans perceive themselves as, as we, we're now in Europe. Not just one-off. You know, we have been in the Europa League. We've got through to the semis. We're now in a conference. We don't... We shouldn't be signing, you know... Not quite... He's not a lottery ticket, but it's a, 
a signing that you may not see the benefits for for a couple of years. We need to succeed now. They wanted something more high-profile, despite the fact if you look at the Haller signing and even to an extent the Skamaka signing, which, you know, first one was a disaster, the second one is too close to call, but at the moment doesn't seem to have worked. And the problem is with Skamaka, as you put all this money in, is that there is no real major Italian team that is going to come in and buy him and cover the, the wages side of things. You, know, you might have to loan him out, and you may never, yeah, you know, that could be a sunk cost. And I think it's where you, you know, historically you look into it and you say, well, the, 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 the classic video online is, is a, it's a West Ham fans forum. And you've got Harry Rennap there, you've got Frank Lampard there. And a fan basically stands up and effectively has a bit of a digger, you know, at the club. And suggested that he thinks that Scott Cannon was a better player than Frank Lampard. And I think Scott Cannon had left or wasn't in the first team. And it also mentions Matt Holland, the, who ended up having quite a good career at Ipswich. And basically, you know, Harry Rennap just, just slaps the guy down and was like, look, Frank Lampard is going to be an absolutely fantastic football player. You know, you, 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 you just watch, wait and see. And it, you know, he was completely and absolutely right. Frank Lampard goes on to have a fantastic career at, you know, with England and with Chelsea. The point is, I think it, it, well, that feeling has maybe always been present, but it's just far more amplified. So in other words, I think the Danjuma loaning was a classic one. Is that, to me, and that some of the, the visceral first reaction was, is that of a lot of Spurs fans was, oh my God, he's a Bournemouth reject. Oh, we've just gazumped Everton or an absolute state right at the bottom. This is terrible. And, and to me, I was like, well, actually, he was very young when he first came through at Bournemouth when they were relegated, played a little bit, but was probably you know a little bit too inexperienced and was in a team that was struggling. And it, but he stays for a year in the championship, bangs in a load of goals and looked perfect. You know, looked like he'd finally settled, and then he ends up going to Villarreal and has a load of success there. Scores you know sort of fifteen twenty goals, scores in the Champions League, helps them get all the way through to the semi finals. And this is literally they spent I think two and a half million pounds on him. No, no, uh, at the end of the loan, at the end of the season, there is no guarantee, you, know, you don't have to buy him. So if it doesn't work out, you can just say, well, two and a half million pounds and whatever you know, money you spent on his wages, which won't be particularly high. And to me, he, you know, he can play down the middle, he can play on the wing, he's got experience in Europe, he scored goals at a top level, you know, in Spanish football. That, to me, is a no-lose signing. But the point is, just because I think people were worried that, well, all the Chelsea fans will be laughing. All the Arsenal fans on Twitter will be laughing, saying, oh, you're a small club. Which actually, to me, is just completely ridiculous. I don't care where the player comes from, as long as he is successful. You know, he can come from, you know, book and cherry pickers, for all I care. If, if the guy starts backing goals, oh, you know, I'm really not that fuss. And I think that, in a way, has had some impact on teams maybe being slightly less willing. There's that classic, again, it's a disjunction, isn't it? We all want to see one of our own playing someone come through the youth system, but you do have snap judgments now that means that I don't think people are as willing to maybe take risks as they may have done at a time when there was less pressure, where the temperature of a football club was a lot lower. It's a bit like the concept of spursiness. I would love to know when it was originally first, that was first used. It's it's a I think it's some it's a concept that has come from football Twitter. 
And to me, it's largely confected. If you look at where Spurs have been in the last 20 years, they have finished in the top four of, you know, you know, on a semi-regular basis, they've done, you know, when they've been in the Champions League, they've, you know, out on the outside, one time that they've been in the Champions League and not made it out of the group stages. That is a level of consistency. Yes, they've lost semi-finals. Yes, they've, you know, come close and not won on occasions. That is, but I wouldn't say that those defeats were particularly Spursy. They're a small, you know, it, within the context of the six, the top six, they are at the lower end. They are nowhere near as big as Chelsea, in terms of the money that has been put into Chelsea, nowhere near the size of Liverpool and Manchester United because of their historical success and their fan bases. You know, they, I think it's more, and you can say I'm biased because I am a Spurs fan, but the point is, is that I think if there was a, if there was a Spursiness, then I don't think they would have beaten Arsenal 3-0 back end of last season. I don't think they'd have beaten Ajax. I don't think they would have, they would have beaten Man City when under Harry Redknapp when they had to go up to the City of Manchester Stadium and beat Man City to get into the Champions League if Spursiness was a real thing. You know, yes, there are times when Spurs have underachieved, but it's underachieving from the fact that they are still a you know, at the back end of the top level of the Premier League and they are they are fighting giants and they are not a giant in of themselves. But because you can use that and it is painful because it does, as long as Spurs don't win anything, there is a, a, a grain, a kernel of truth to that. And at times they can be a little bit, you know, they can lose games they should win. But then you could say the same thing about Arsenal. You could definitely say the same thing about, you know, you know about the early reign part of, you know, Jurgen Klotz when they got to finals and didn't win. And yet, you know, no one's ever con- put the point of Liverpoolness. Because it's just ridiculous because they've had, you know, success. It's that. But the thing is, is that the perception can be far more powerful than the truth. And that is definitely true in a lot of elements of modern life, specifically to, you know, relevant to social media. So what I'm going to do now is really do kind of a a quick run through of, you know, the thoughts that I have about the top six and their sort of recent transfers. So... With United, you know, I've already mentioned about, you know, the negative impact that, you know, Ronaldo had and how it was very much an Instagram signing. It was a signing that was aimed to get a lot of Instagram likes. I don't think it really had a huge benefit to United. Much in a little bit in the same way that, you know, really Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Although he put up numbers, it had a short-term benefit in terms of, again, Instagram and, you know, all all the focus on it. But in the end, it was really... You know, for all of the goals he did score, he was in some way, shape, or form um, a net negative in the way that his movement. In other words, he put up numbers and they did all right, but it wasn't a long-term signing. And I think whatever benefit, I think it was relatively minimal. I think it was kind of neutral by the end of it. Whatever good he did had a sort of negative aspect on it. Mm. Whatever short-term good had a negative long-term impact. Mm. You know, they've been... And this is the thing with United. At some point, you could say they spent a load of money and done it badly and made some bad signings. And at some point, they've been underpaying because of all of the element of the glaze and all the money and all the debt servicing. So, you know, you look at, you know, the signings of Fred and the signings of Maguire a few years ago, and it was almost as if they were so intent on winning the, the transfer window and winning the social media aspects of it 
it was like, okay, if Man City want them, we will blow them out of the water. And, you know, I think with both of those ones is that Man City had some interest and they were had a price. I think with them, they're like, well, £40 million with the players we have, Fred could be quite a useful player. However, we are not going to go to £60 million and we do not think that he is going to be the second coming of anything, much in the same way they like Maguire. But once it got up to the sort of stratospheric numbers, they were quite happy to drop out because the you know, there were... With both of those players, there are clear, there are minuses, there are pluses to them, they have skills, they are good players, but they are not perfect. You know, if you compare, let's say, Maguire with Van Dyke, the Van Dyke £75 million was a very good move, and the £85 million from Maguire hasn't been, whereby I think had you signed Maguire for £50 million, that could have been a better thing. But that's the point, is that there was a savviness with Man City that... Manchester United didn't have. They wanted to win the narrative and that trumped the value and the talent levels of the players involved. And, you know, it's important to note, really, for the first time in a lot of years, you've had the influence of high-end coaching. Like, someone like Wan-Bissaka, who basically, we'd, they'd all given up on him. He'd been left for scrap. He was close to becoming a white elephant signing. But he's recently improved. You know, you've had Luke Shaw used as a centre-half. It's bold and creative. And, you know, they've used youth a lot more effectively, you know, with, you know, Garnacho and with Alanga, whereby previously when they sort of brought in players like sort of Brandon Williams, that was more or less along the lines of, you know, and Tanzebe to a certain extent. That was, oh God, we, we're panicking, get some youth players in, maybe one of them will be turned into a lottery ticket, you know, and a great move. With Arsenal, as I've said, it's, it's the element, it's easy to rebuild from a low ebb. Once you've had those that season, that first season where they finished and they were out, they didn't even qualify for the Europa League. That gave them the the opportunity. They what I would say about Arsenal is they've used their crisis very well. They've had a crisis. They had a few years where they struggled, but they have managed to get rid of a lot of the crap. Got some an ethos and a style of play that. Works and a manager that that has you know a large amount of runway. I mean the thing that the next difficult step is really is coming next is how and where to improve on a relatively limited budget, and that's what issue that tripped up Spurs and Pochettino. I think you know like I said earlier, what you know can Smith Rowe get back into the team? You know and can they buy the right type of depth? You know will Tierney stay? What I would say is is that where I think that Arsenal may have the good fortune is that it you know Man United is still developing and are not quite there. Man City are in a bit of a you know they they seem to have reached a bit of a a bit of a crossroads with their team and that's the team I'm going to speak about next. But I think what you have with Pochettino was it was it was difficult to find out where you could have improved the squad. The, and it wasn't an obvious candidate. I think what Arsenal may end up doing is is that you by winning the league this year, you've you've then you improve the players. I think the mentality improves and the way how the crowd reacts. You don't get ever called a nearly team. Whereby if let's say they finish second, let's say Man City roll off thirteen wins in a row and win the league, it then becomes difficult and that there comes a little bit of a mental block and it becomes harder. In other words, if you sat there and said right now, who how would you improve Arsenal? You may say well. Possibly a centre midfielder to maybe replace Jack. Although Jack is in career form at the moment, 
you might possibly say a, a fullback, but then that fullback would have to be better than Zinchenko, that would have to be better than Tierney, or maybe a right back, but then that right back would have to be better than Ben White, or you know, at least in the attacking sense, but would still have to be at least some form of, you know, would have to be at somewhat the level defensively that Tomiyashu and that White have. And I don't think that is necessarily easy, especially if you don't have a huge budget. Their squad still is a little bit weak. You might say a backup striker, but then backup strikers are difficult to get. Look at all the problems Spurs have had trying to find someone to back up you know, Kane. I think with Man City, a lot of it, moving on to Man City, is that it's the use of Haaland. And there's a bit of a lack of depth. I think they were a little bit arrogant in the sense that they didn't think that Zinchenko and Jesus were maybe as important as they were. And they don't think they ever imagined that they'd be that Arsenal would make that jump from you know just outside the top four to you know top of the league. You know, I mean, can Phillips or Grealish make a, a decisive impact? I mean, I think the question is, is that is, is Pep willing to amend his principles to get the best out of Haaland and to get that past that European hurdle? You know, will there be any of these youth team players break through? They they don't look to be. There looks to be a bit of a blockage, you know, especially with Palmer and with Delap and whether they can get, you know, into the team. At the moment, it seems to me that it's they're at a bit of a crossroads and they don't appear... I don't think they're going to win the league this year. I don't see how they're going to cohere into a team that can win 10, 12 games in a row, which is what has been... It, underpinned whenever they've been in the title race that's what's underpinned it Liverpool done brilliantly well but you cannot really defend against a team that wins 13 games in a row 13 14 15 games in a row it is just impossible and they don't appear you know, at times they've struggled as if he almost as if they if he didn't really want to use Haaland just as an out and out striker but the thing is what if you're going to go into the tactics of it all it means is that you can't, you just aren't quite as you know, pure Guardiola as they normally are. But you have an apex predator finisher. All of your players are so fantastically talented, and you've got the youth team behind them. Look at the Rico Lewis signing, you know, the Rico Lewis emergence. You could have used much more of that, you know, young talent. And actually, you just made the, the stylistic change to be a bit more vertical. I think, yeah, there's no reason why they shouldn't win the league this year. I mean, Arsenal are a very good side, but they are not, you know, they are not that Liverpool team that you know, was, was getting upper end 90 points. You know, 99, 100 points. With the talent they have, there is an element of underachievement there. And what will, I think, make their season is whether they win the Champions League or not. Now, another club that's in some form of crisis, I mean... With Liverpool, I, I've touched upon the issues they've had in terms of the ownership, which hasn't helped, and then the you know all of the uh, you know at the sort of director level and at the football operations side of things. But the thing is, you still have Jurgen Klopp. You still have all of that success they had. I mean, last season was such an amazing season. They were very, very close to getting you know a quadruple. But you know, you've had. The issue where they ran out of centre halves and that you know, nearly you know ruined what you know one of their seasons and that was you know a little bit careless and a little bit negligent. The fact you've then had it get happen again with the midfield, which has basically just collapsed. It's it's been left to wither on the vine. You know you're talking about age, you're talking about tread on the tyres, the emotional sides of having such a long season, and the disappointment. 
And the fact that a lot of those players already had large amounts of success is difficult to keep going back to the well. And it, I think it was naive bordering on arrogance. And you know, you've had you know, for too long they kept players like Cater and Oxley Chamberlain who were just well, really, you know, treading water. And really the question is, is that they appear to now have got to the stage where it's Bellingham or bust. Now, if it was a situation where Jude Bellingham's Twitter handle was, you know, Jude Bellingham LFC forever. And, you know, his bedroom in you know, Dortmund was, you know, had, you know, Liverpool sheets on it. I'd be saying, OK, fair enough. But the point is, is that there are question marks whether he can singularly reinvent them, re- reinvigorate their midfield. And does his style of play even fit, for, tr- is a true fit for Klopp ball? If you're going to spend all of your money on Jude Bellingham, you're not going to have much room for, you know, if you're spending under £20 million, there isn't going to be a huge amount of room really, for another centre-half, because, in my opinion, Virgil van Dijk is now in the you know, gentle decline phase of his career. And the point is, there is an element of that Liverpool have become a bit too predictable. You know, the point is is that, you know, with Gakpo, that was a bit of a weird signing. If you really wanted him, why did you let Man United nearly sign him? You know, was it a, a front-line target of a smash-and-grab raid at United's expense? And... Well, really, how will that forward line? Is Gakpo a guaranteed starter, or are you putting him in there to compete with um, with Diogo Jota? You know, are you you know are you finally moving away from Firmino, or is he still going to be there? You know, and I suppose the real question is is that yeah, I suppose now that you you get into the point where the front three are going to move on, is that can that front line you know work in the same way? Obviously, you know. In my opinion, you know, Darwin Nunes has a huge amount of talent, but whether he fully fits into the sort of clock ball, like, whether there's going to be changes, and whether really, to an extent, is Jurgen Klopp now you know, nudging towards the climb phase. He's had lots of years at the top, and I think the assumption is it is really, you have sort of nine to ten years, the sort of John Madden element where you have nine to ten years at the top, and then things start to drop off. And whether, you know, the problems with you know, at the board level and at the football operations level, whether that is in fact exacerbating his decline. You know, but we've had this before. You know, again, when I was mentioning the season where they, you know, the, the COVID season where they lost a lot at home and then rebounded. It's we're not in the stage at the moment where we can you, know, you can write off Jurgen Klopp with any amount of confidence. You know, there's a potential that next season, you know, they could well be back to where they are. It's not a guarantee. There, there are more question marks than I think there ever have been before. Which then goes on to Chelsea, where there's an awful lot of questions. And I suppose you immediately start with, you know, can this squad cohere around Graham Potter? Or, you know, will it prove a step too far? You know, they've all, you know, the rules, you know, they for all of their smart arsery about, oh, look, well, and they 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 used specifically from baseball, which was the idea is is that you know with baseball you have a um, a luxury tax. In other words, if you spend more than and it's over, let's say two hundred and thirty million pounds, you have to pay you know a tax of ten fifteen percent on everything up and above two hundred and thirty million pounds in terms of your wage bill. But and the way how it's calculated is the average um, expenditure per year. So in other words, if you have a guy on one on a one year contract for forty million dollars, that was a huge part of your you know luxury tax. Whereby if you say actually the guy's on a 
eight-year contract at 20 million, it then evens out. And that's what they've done here when they signed a load of players to like seven, eight-year contracts. But already FIFA have you know, changed the rule to get round that. And so really, who will be the attacking, central attacking figure? You know, the fact is you signed all of those great, all those you know, two young promising centre-halves and you've already spent money on Koulibaly, who I felt was in the decline phase of his career anyway, the gentle decline phase. Well, what does that say to Levi Colville, who's on loan at Brighton and doing quite well? Obviously, they don't, you know, and that says the channel comes to Chalabar as well. Well, what does that say to you? Is there really any point of going back to Chelsea and wasting a year of your career on the bench? Yeah, and what's that say to everybody else at Cobham? And to be fair, I think having so many options in the attacking midfield, will that be a boom? Will that end up working because you have so many options, so many different ways you can do it? Or will it be a bit like when they had, you know, you had Ziyech, when you had Pulisic, when you had Mount, and you had all of these players, and you they can't all succeed at the same time. Somebody has to drop off. And the thing is, and I think the wider issue is what, where will the centre of power be? Is it with the owner, the management, or the front office? And I'm not sure. And really, what is interesting is what we haven't mentioned, and what we should do before I move on to the final bit of the podcast, which is speaking about Spurs, is well, well, how will the rise of Newcastle and the lack of Champions League in football impact the two teams that will miss out? Possibly the three teams that will miss out. You know, Newcastle have been well run and Eddie Howe's done a fantastic job. So that is the is a major question going into next season. And I think it really does depend on how Newcastle play the rest of the season. I think there is a I can see a way that they turn their form recent poor form around and finish in the top four. I can see a world in which they don't have quite enough depth and they get sort of pipped at the post. But it is really interesting. So finally, we get to Spurs, and I think they're the ones that I think, at the moment, on we're going into the start of the season, you they had a great finish to the end of the season. They had a good transfer window. There was so much positivity. The squad looked like it had more depth than it has had in recent years, and yet it's not really worked out. The massive question is: Conte going to stay? Is it the right decision to want to keep him? You know, is he out of ideas? Is he in the gentle decline phase? Is he a negative influence on the team in a way that Mikel Arteta is not a negative influence at Arsenal? You know, is it in the death spiral? Yeah, there seems to be a lack of new ideas. You know, a lack of subs. You know, he's bitched about how you know the lack of depth, and yet now he's been given that depth, he's really failed to meaningfully use it. You know, I, th- I think one of the interesting ones was when he wasn't at the Man City game because he was recovering back in Italy. Between Stellini and between Mason, they made an in-game change to the team um, when they were playing Man City. They pushed um, Eric Dyer further up from his normal centre-half position to start basically pressing on Bernardo Silva. And that cut off you know, a- an amount of... you know. Man City's plays, it isolated Haaland to a centre and was really a match-defining, you know, tactical change after like 15, 20 minutes. And my question is, is I'm not 100% sure that uh, Conte would have made that decision had he been in the dugout. That seemed to me to be a lot more Mason and Stellini than it did anything to do with Antonio Conte. 
And that to me is a massive red flag. That's kind of what reminds me a little bit of Mourinho. And I suppose if he isn't the right option, is is Poch the answer? Because you have a style of play issue. They are not playing particularly amazing football. And I think it then bleeds into the sense of, well, where should Spurs be looking to make their signings from? Is it from the Premier League? Is it from France? Is it from Portugal? Do you go for younger players? Do you go for more experienced players? And I think in the point is, because you, and I, this is why I will put an element of the blame onto Levy, is that there is a lack of direction. You've had Nuno, you've had Mourinho, you've had Conte, and they all had elements of short-termism to it. And I suppose the point is, is that it's that fear is that the elephant in the room is what happens if Son and Kane decline in their early 30s, and how would you replace them and what you would do about it. And so, which now leads us on to... And I don't know, I don't think they have the answer in a way that, you know, it's, I think the element is, is that we can go back to the moment after Spurs have qualified for the Champions League and Arsenal would really drop the ball. And it looks to me like Spurs have won the battle, but it looks like Arsenal are winning the war. And really, they put a huge amount of faith in Fabio Paratici, you know, effectively, you know, the head honcho, the, you know, really the head of football operations at Spurs. And at the moment, he, there's a possibility due to the, you know, Juventus scandal, you know, plus the Lens scandal, that he might have a 30-month ban and really have to leave his job. You know, will they replace him? If they bring in, if it potches the answer, I don't think he wants to work under a director of football. And suddenly what you have is a situation where if you look at the squad, it, there's, there's conundrums everywhere. You have the five-centre midfielder conundrum. You now have Hoiberg, Bentoncourt and Basuma who are in their mid to late 20s and they're all relatively samey sort of players. I mean, maybe you say Basuma is more of a box-to-box, Hoiberg is more of a sort of defensive stopper and Bentoncourt is a bit of a passer who this season has seemed to kick on a little bit more on the offensive side of things. But now, but you spent all this 15, sort of 15 16, 17 million on Ishmael, on um, Saar, the centre midfielder from France, who plays for Senegal, and you have Skip, who are in their early 20s, but you've now suddenly got five very similar-looking centre midfielders, and you can't all fit them in. And, well, who are you going to sell? Are you going to sell Basuma after he's had not the best debut season? You know, you don't want to lose Skip. He's a young player, come from the youth system. Saar looks like he has an absolutely... Yeah, he looks. Yeah, there was Ella, There's times when he's looked a bit like Patrick Vieira, and that's probably you know maybe you know he's only played a handful of games. So I, I, I there's an element that I'm jumping the gun, but he does seem to you know the fact that both him, Saar and Skip made their Champions League debuts at you know the San Siro in a really pressure game and did well, and then suddenly, well, if you had those players and you rated them, why have you now ended up in the situation where why did you sign Basuma then, if he's really going to be blocking them. And you've got these five centre midfielders, but who's the playmaker? And you, you know, you're overloaded in, in that, in, with you know, defensive-style midfielders. You need a playmaker, but you don't seem to have one. I mean, one of the players that you say is maybe um, Divine, who they signed from Wigan, who's a young kid, who you know, made his debut a couple of years ago, scored a goal at Marine in the Cup, but then he's had no game time. They can't loan him out because they, if they loan him out, they can't then register him as a homegrown player. 
So we don't know where this kid is. He's barely ha- he's not had any playing time under Conte. So we know he's talented, but we don't know to the extent of it. You now have a three left back conundrum, well three left wing back conundrum, and it is it's just an uneven squad. So you've signed Perisic on a two year contract on big money. He's in his mid thirties and he's done pretty well, but he's clearly not got the pace. I think, to be an everyday starter in the Premier League or a top-end starter in the Premier League. Okay, but you had Sessegnon, but now he's had a bit of an up-and-down season and their question, you know, he's got another hamstring injury and whether he can... He's defensively got better, but attackingly he hasn't really got to that next level, but he's still relatively young. But now you've got... They've spent 15, I think, 15, 20 million pounds on Destiny Udoji, who is a... Yeah, left wing back Italian playing at Udinese, who's on loan there for after Spurs have bought him. Now he's had a really good season, but he's very young. It's only his second full season in Italy, and he's never played in the Premier League. So what do you do? You can't really sell Perisic because he's in his mid thirties. He's on huge money. You can't sell him to Europe, and well, so what do you do? Do you sell Sessegnon? But he's at a low ebb, so you might get as much money. But then you've got a 30 mid guy in his mid-30s who isn't going to be able to play every single week. But then you've got a guy who's in his early 20s who's then making this move from Italy to England. There's not enough playing time. And it's like, well... And then it leads into, well, is this squad too beholden on 3-4-3? Is there the opportunities to, to try... If, let's say, you don't... If Conte decides to go back to Italy for health, mental health reasons... Yeah, which would be perfectly understandable, just doesn't want to be, or doesn't have faith in it, in the Spurs project. And then, well, but then you've, then, then you've got a three right wing back conundrum. Because, the, the, and the, this, is my, this is my theory on Jed Spence, is that they've signed this kid, he has a lot of promise, you know, he'd done well enough in the championship, he'd done well when Forrest had a bit of a cup run, and he played a couple of good Premier League teams, and, you know, done well. Yes, there are some weaknesses. When I saw him make his debut for Wren, he looked very good going forward. His tracking back was off the ball was pretty much non-existent. There is you know, work to be done on him, but the fact is that he's gone in, played in high-end, you know, Europa League football. He's week in, week out, in a good, a good standard, a good team in Wren, and hasn't looked out of place. So the point is, is that there is no reason that he had like what forty-five minutes worth of football in total, considering that Doherty hadn't been Doherty hadn't been playing well. Neither had Emerson Royale. There is no reason that he needed to be kept that far apart. And my view is, is that it's he was politicized. Is that I think Conte was aware that if he gave Spence four or five games, that he would do just well enough. To then mean that if he would then went to the board and said, actually, I want another right wing back, that they would have been less willing to have bought Pedro Porro for forty plus million pounds in a very difficult negotiation with Sporting Lisbon. And so, and that's it. Because if you're doing if you're doing playing above average in France, then you are perfectly capable of being at least league average in the Premier League. He's got enough promise in terms of his pace and he's played enough times against Premier League teams that he couldn't have been as bad as some of Emerson Royale's forms. I know Emerson Royale's recently improved, but now suddenly you've got three right wing backs once, you know, 
Spence comes back. So, okay, do you then get rid of Emerson Royale? Can you, you know, because you spent 25 million on him, you've spent, you know, 25 million, what? You spent just under 20 million pounds, give or take, for Spence, and you spent 44, 40 plus million pounds on Poro. So that's basically, you're talking about 80 million pounds worth of three right wing backs. And so then, do you end up with two attacking? So let's say you sell Royale, you might lose money on that, but then you've got two very similar attacking right wing backs who are not maybe the best defensively. It just smacks of bad planning. They're constantly up against the homegrown limit, home and abroad. You have the Matt Doherty debacle. Okay, we want to loan you out. Oh, you're up to your limit of seven players who can be on a foreign at any given point, which they obviously didn't realise. And then they've had to release the guy. And it was just like, oh... You know, you had the, the Rodon panic signing and, you know, Jose played him a little bit the first time he made him, like, dropped him. Conte barely gave him much of a look in. And it's just, you know, you, you've had, you know, there's no, there's a limited pipeline. Because, I mean, at this point, you know, Skip or Saar, whoever, which one of them, isn't, is unlikely to, to make it. Unless you get rid of Basuma, which then points out why did you buy Basuma if you didn't have confidence in Saar or Skip. Yeah, you've had Marcus Edwards has fallen through the cracks, Noni Madueke. And to be fair with him, I look, to me, Stanford Bridge is a graveyard for young, promising attacking midfielders. So it, it, it's a little... I suppose my frustration is, is that if you leave Spurs saying that you don't think you're ever going to get... that you're going to get a fair shake at the first team, do quite well at PSG, you know, PSV Eindhoven, and then move to Chelsea, it's like, well, do you trust Chelsea not to screw you over? I hope it works out for him, but, and you know, you're looking at, you know, with the Dane Scarlett, what's the plan for him, what's the plan for Troy Parrott, and there's just, it, it seems a little bit of a mess, and I just get the feeling, you know, with, even with, you know, even with Richarlison, there was some question marks that that was more of a Levy signing, than it, and it just looks a bit messy. Even some of the, you know, Paratici's better signings were, you know, uh, Kulisewski and Bentoncourt, who had basically, he'd signed for Juventus, who'd got, and Juventus were in a similar position where they had a load of attacking players, like, you know, Bernadeschi. You then had, you had Chiesa. You'd signed Dusan Vlahovic. And then, and, and then Kulisewski got pushed out. And then you had all, a load of centre midfielders they had at the club, and they didn't really have room for Bentoncourt. But that's some of those problems are was created from the mess that he had created in the first instance. Even Romero, who I believe, you know, was on you know Juventus's books for a little while and then ended up at Atalanta. And it's just the fact that you know, to me, it just underlines. I don't think that the, I think the top four, sorry, the top six have immense wealth, and I think they have a fan, fantastic youth systems. And I think that at the moment. In the future, I, I get the feeling that the power might start going back to managers instead of front offices because there seems to be disjunctions, there seems to be a general lack of, of vision and it seems to be a lot more chaotic and despite all the, the reams of statistics and analysis, it still seems to be fairly, fairly slapdash. I mean, what, if there was a plan at Spurs, why did you wait for Dan Juma to be at Everton, being measured up for his kit before you make the move. And okay, if you then you know sign him on loan, but then Antonio Conte doesn't play him, then 
well, well what was the point of signing him then if you were barely going to play him you might as well have kept Brian Hill and barely played him what is the the difference you, know, you look at the Romelu Lukaku signings you know he's had three different spells at top six clubs and it hasn't worked you know you've had Aubameyang that's caused issues at you know Arsenal you know he was then a panic signing for Chelsea he was then you know sorry panic signing for Barcelona then a panic signing for Chelsea and it hasn't been used and it there, there seems to be a lot more out and out incompetence than there is genius in the top six with their transfer dealings at the moment. Thank you for listening.